Fads, anecdotes, fake news and gut instinct, not the most reliable tools for HR practitioners, but still surprisingly popular. So in this episode, we're going to take a long, hard look at an alternative, evidence-based practice, what it is, how it works and why it's a far better toolkit. First, some background from perhaps the best-known expert in the field, Eric Behrens, Managing Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Management. So evidence-based practice is not something that we invented or the Centre for Evidence-Based Management invented. It was introduced in the early 90s in medicine because even in medicine, a lot of claims were being made regarding treatments or health or whatsoever. And they felt that they should make a more evidence-based decision, meaning they should have a look at the research findings to figure out whether evidence, whether the evidence supports the claim or whether it contradicts the claim. That is actually how it started. So the official definition of evidence-based practice is that it's about making decisions through the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of the best available evidence. And the aim is to increase the likelihood of a favorable outcome of your decision. Now, that's a bit a technical explanation of what it is. Important here, it's about multiple sources, not only one, and it's about the critically appraised evidence. So you need to figure out how trustworthy the evidence is that you use in your decisions. But a more maybe better understandable uh, explanation is, is, is uh, the fact that in daily life, Claims are being made all the time. Claims about what we should do or shouldn't do, about health or lifestyle or what to buy or what to eat, etc. So in management, it's it's more or less the same. In management, a lot of claims are being made. You know, you should engage your workforce because then become they become more productive. You should introduce self-steering teams because that because that is good for performance. And evidence-based practice helps you to figure out the trustworthiness of those claims. How does the evidence support or maybe contradict those claims? And based on that outcome, based on that finding, you can make better decisions. So in short, it's a tool, it's an approach to figure out whether claims are trustworthy or not. Joining me in the room to talk about how we can put evidence-based practice to work, I have Johnny Gifford, Senior Advisor at the CIPD, and Nicola Stallwood, Head of Organisational Development and Training at the Zoological Society in London. CIPD thinks this is the way forward, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think there's a recognition that we, as as an HR profession, have not been evidence-based enough in the past. Many professions, to be fair, aren't that evidence-based. Some do better. Healthcare, for example, policing would be another. Um, And there's a great deal that we can do to both bake better quality evidence into the body of knowledge and also uh, improve our skills as professionals so that we're drawing on better sources of evidence and making better decisions. So, Nicola, obviously you put this into practice. We want to hear all about that in a minute. But first, do you want to tell us a bit about the Zoological Society? Sure. ZSL, the Zoological Society, we are across two sites in the UK. Um, We've got Regent's Park in London and we also have a zoo at Whipsnade. Um, And we're based across six international offices, also where we run conservation programmes. And your role there is? I'm head of organisational development and training. Okay. So how many people are we talking about? 
We're talking roughly about a thousand people in total. Okay. Plus about 500 volunteers. So both of you, can you give us a bit of a picture of what areas of HR this sort of approach can be used in? So there is a whole range of people management areas uh, that are ripe for the picking for evidence-based practice. I mean, if we're talking about motivation, what actually motivates people? If we're talking about what the link between motivation and performance is, or the link between performance and well-being, what does the best quality evidence actually say about these things? Because we can have many assumptions about these areas. Any, any area of practice, really, whether it's recruitment practice, performance management, onboarding people, different approaches to pay, pretty much all areas of HR are ripe for the picking. In my role, um, I'm responsible for introducing, uh, to a large degree, new interventions or improving existing ones. Um, And so you're you're right that the environment is rich for the picking in terms of evidence-based approach. Um, But it's not always the case that you come into a blank sheet of paper and can start off um, on the right foot very often. You're picking up something that's been happening in the same way over many years. And actually, to change that you're going through a whole theory of change process um, as well as maybe introducing an evidence-based uh, approach. I've been at SEDICEL now for a year and where I have found it easiest to introduce and I won't say that I've tried very hard in, in other areas but a part of our of ZSL is the Institute of Zoology and that is largely made up of research scientists and they are very keen to develop uh, leadership not only in their technical science but also in terms of what they call the softer side of leadership. And their director is very open to getting some support uh, from my role and my team in developing that. And with that open door, because let's face it, it's not always an open door with senior people with leadership interventions or leadership programs. But with that open door, I was able to start from a a blank sheet of paper and start off seeking to take an evidence-based approach. I won't say it was brilliant, but it's um, certainly a start. So that was quite a helpful place to start, wasn't it? Because obviously the academic community, they're used to evidence-based. They use it in their own work. So presumably you weren't having to explain it from the ground up. Absolutely. And actually that was that was kind of an in because uh, talking from an evidence-based approach was really quite, I, I guess, attractive to the director of science and uh, his senior team. Um, and so I, I kind of had to put my money where my mouth was um, and make sure that the, the approach was followed okay so can I talk about steps then what is the starting point I mean presumably whatever problem you have or whatever you want to address you need to turn that into a question because you're looking for answers aren't you is is that right yes and um I, I think our starting point with the senior research fellows as a group a group of people together with the director of science to talk about what indeed is that question that we're seeking to address and you know it's a it's a massive comfort zone for these people because that's how they operate that's how they work so actually we had close to a half day dedicated to exploring and unpicking what leadership might mean and bringing it down to a research question which we agreed was how to create a research ecosystem. Nice. I mean, as you say, it's not always that straightforward to define the question, is it? Sounds easy. I, I think you're right. It's not easy and it's absolutely crucial. Um, so 
the, it's, it's about critical thinking, really. You talk to, to employers or HR professionals about, you know, what, what your problem is, and they'll say, problem is we don't have a mentoring system, for example. And that's, well, that's not actually your problem. That's, that's what um, one of our colleagues, Rob Breener, would call solutioneering. It's like defining your problem as the lack of a particular solution. It's like, no, what are you actually trying to achieve? And you need to do that. You need to drill down, and you need to go... What is it you're trying to achieve and why? How do you know that that is actually a problem in the first place? We need, we need to uh, reduce our absence levels. Okay, what are your absence levels? Because very often people don't actually know what their absence levels are. And if they do, they certainly don't know how their absence levels compare to similar organizations in, their, in, in the same industry, for example. So you've got to understand, have you got a problem in the first place? What is your problem? And try and not make that sound too aggressive, sort of thing to me. What's your problem? But it, it can. Um, but but what is the problem you're trying to fix? And therefore, what is the 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 researchable question that you want answered? Okay. So step one: actually ask yourself, is the question you think you're addressing the question you should be addressing? Step two, in my mind, the best ways to find and select evidence. And I know this is a big question. It's a really big question and it's one that I struggled with, if I'm honest. I think gathering the internal data and, and validating the assumptions we had around uh, people's misconceptions or misunderstanding of what leadership meant. And that involved meeting with the senior research fellows one to one. It involved, you know, looking at past trends in terms of development reviews. And also these guys had been through promotion processes. So we had a, a lot of kind of rich data to, to look through. But on the industry research, and I think this is this is possibly more of a, a learning and development area for, for myself and, and for my colleagues, but actually accessing external data and meta-analysis on topics like leadership interventions that work. Um, possibly the wrong question I'm asking there, but um, that wasn't easy. I mean, Google Scholar can give you a little bit, but I, I felt like I was just scrambling around in the dark. Yeah. So a couple of things strike me about that. One is that there is, in a way, a, an art about evidence-based practice. It sounds all very scientific, but there, there's an art to actually doing it because we're, we're talking about bringing together different sources of evidence, different types of evidence. It's not about turning practitioners into academics. It's about drawing on that uh, scientific, academic, if you like, research. And also, as you say, bringing that together with, with organisational data and our own professional expertise and also stakeholder concerns. So we've got really quite different sources of data. We're trying to bring them together and that's not a straightforward process. Yeah, I mean, as Nicholas says, it sounds straightforward, but it isn't, is it? Where do you find evidence? I mean, obviously it depends on your sector. It depends what your organisation is. But are there any useful steers we can give people about where to start with that? Yeah, so the, the, the type of question needs would lead to uh, the type of evidence that you're looking for. Yeah, and that's why we need to be so clear about the kind of questions that, that we're asking, because it will take you to different places. If, you're, if your question is about what, what's the extent of this problem, have we got a problem in this, that or the other, then you're going to be looking at organisational data, you may be looking at industry level data, etc. If your question is about this particular HR practice, does it work? 
um, then you might be also looking to, uh, well, you will need to look at academic research that's, that's tried and tested and evaluated those practices with independent data. That's really important too. And of course that brings us to the it's seriously important question of how do you evaluate the data you gather? Because the world is full of information and data, isn't it? There's a quality issue. We're not academics, all of us, so what are the guiding points there? Well, I have to say that the, the my North Star was the one-to-one um, interviews that I had with each of the senior research fellows. That really kind of clarified for me what their interest and their appetite and their questions lay. Tell us a bit about what you have done on the ground. We talked about the process. What have you done? Um, so we had a, um, they were all really keen to say, we don't want anything too formal, uh, which, which made me smile. Um, but they did want an opportunity to get together and have discussion. And of course, they were open to learning more which is the whole part of uh, this process. So I introduced them to, I was really keen to start getting them, having a different, facilitating them and hopefully inspiring them to have a different type of conversation. And I, um, I knew from the conversations I had that they had never completed any kind of uh, psychometric or uh, leadership or strengths analysis okay. um, or assessment. So I um, ran the Clifton Strengths Finder 2.0 uh, with a group, uh, which they all found very Americanized, um, and right. they found the questions irritating. Uh-huh. Um, and I, what the reason I went for that that tool was because they made their technical reports really accessible. Um, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to answer the, the questions around standard deviation, uh, reliability and validity as much as they would possibly Great. want. Yeah. So I was able to print off uh, the technical reports, uh, provide them on the day. And I think that helped get it off to a really good start. They still had issues with those, but um, it, it helped them understand that there was a kind of foundation and basis of research and evidence to the, the instrument. Um, so um, it then kind of gave them permission to kind of relax a little, trust me a bit more, and just get into the conversation around the diversity of strengths that they each bring. Because, you know, although um, highly intelligent, clever people, they still had typical issues around, you know, tensions within teams, not talking enough to each other, etc. So this helped help them have a different kind of conversation and consider the differences that they each bring. That's interesting. So in terms of behaviours after this process, you, I mean, evaluation is the next step. What, what did you get? Um, so very uh, self-driven. So I've had the, the least to do in terms of being the facilitator that I've ever had with a group because they agreed the actions. And I said, oh, I'll write these up for you helpfully. And they were like, we, we, know, we know what the actions are. So they, <laughs> they um, set up a uh, bi-monthly lunch 
where they were all going to get together and they were going to share, take turns in sharing kind of the issues or the research questions they wanted to talk more about. Were you invited to these lunches? Uh, No. Okay. Although they were very friendly when they did see me. (laughs) But that was when we met the second time. They each referenced really informally, but oh, you remember when we spoke about that when we met before? And um, it was the third lunch before the last one. That's when we had that conversation. So you could tell it started to become part of how they were operating. They are self driven and they have started to create the community that they want to operate in for themselves and their teams so this sounds like a success so, so far <laughs> she says with fingers and toes crossed i mean it sounds good that they, they, you've given them the tools they pick them up they're using them it's happening are you thinking you'll now take this process into other areas of your work definitely well it sounds good so johnny i mean it's, it's an interesting story isn't it and presumably the sort of experience a lot of hrs go through when they're trying to just in the foothills of doing this yeah and i think realistically i think most are in the foothills uh, of doing this hr as a as a profession is is not as evidence-based as as other professions i think you know we can hold our hands up and, and be honest about that but i think you're right it's a, re- it's a really nice example of, of how it can how you can do this in practice in terms of a, a, a sort of a model you know, we do we have a, an established model which we developed with the Centre for Evidence-Based Management, saying you know here are six steps that you can go through in applying evidence-based practice. First of all, searching for high-quality research, so scientific, academic research. Not everyone has access to it, like you say. You can get a lot of stuff on Google Scholar. Knowing how to do the searches to begin with, there's a real craft to that. Then being able to, to, to understand the technical aspects of uh, research and meta-analyses. But what we need to do is critically appraise that evidence, make sure that we've done a really good search of the evidence so that we've got, got all the bases covered. We've found all of the best evidence in the area. Then we need to kind of aggregate that. And then the kind of uh, the alchemy process is then taking that and, and making it, turning it into really practical prosaic, understandable, day-to-day recommendations and sort of action points. And, and, as, and as you were saying, Philippa, as well, there's then a, a key role for practitioners to play in evaluating their own practices. So make sure you evaluate it. You know, you've got you, loads of researchers, academics who, who love to be able to help with that. And then you can be contributing back into the body of knowledge so you're not only drawing on you know the best available evidence out there but you can be contributing to it the sense i get is there's quite a lot of resistance to evidence-based practice and there do seem to be quite a lot of misconceptions uh, about it so can i put some to you and i'd be really interested to hear your answers so here's one for you there's the sense that evidence-based approach ignores professional uh, sorry evidence-based approach ignores practitioners professional experience and it's just all about numbers and stats that doesn't surprise me because you know it's the the kind of turgid get stuck in so much analysis that you don't actually do anything um, and a practitioner can often feel like I know the lay of the land I know what's needed here let me just get on with it um, and to be honest that's actually the expectations of many organizations we pay your salary to do stuff to deliver things and um, if you're just doing lots of research that's not what we asked you to do 
Yeah, it's an attitude of we pay you to know. So if we've paid, yeah. if we've given, if we've promoted you, you must know. Yeah. I think linked to that, there's a, a sense that people have of, you know, we are evidence-based. Of course we're all evidence-based. Yes, in some sense, we're all evidence-based. We all draw on evidence in one way or another. But evidence-based practice as a thing is, is something different. Okay, here's another. It's too time-consuming. People are busy. I'd agree with that. Um, <laughs> um, it, it feels time consuming because I'm not very good at all of it um, and I think if you know it, it's about understanding at what points you need to get help and asking for that early on enough it doesn't have to be time consuming it's, uh, so if we if you look at uh, like the the hardest end of evidence-based practice conducting full-scale systematic reviews and meta-analyses yes that's very time consuming that can take a couple of years for a team of academics um, but you don't need to do that you can you can dip into it in fairly reliable ways without having to go down that route but it's a much better approach to uh, look at say for example existing systematic reviews or if we're even more time pressured, look at summaries, like practitioner-based summaries. And I think there is a gap in the market uh, for knowing where to access and find those summaries. I think that would be really, really helpful. So you're convinced it's the direction of travel we should all be moving in. Can I just briefly explore some of the pitfalls? Because obviously, Nicola, you've done this now. What were the things you kind of actually, well, I won't be doing that again. <laughs> Because this felt like a, I was very conscious about following the steps and applying the process. Uh, looking back, I wish I'd, I'd just believed in myself a bit more. So you mentioned the steps. So the steps of making sure you're asking the right questions, exactly. finding the right evidence, assessing it, aggregating it, pulling it together and uh, drawing out lessons from it. Yes. So you know, if people listen to this and they're thinking, you know, this is interesting, I would like to know more about it. There is a lot on the site, isn't there? Yeah, there's, we've got stacks of stuff on the CIPD website, in particular with the new HR profession map. So first of all, we articulate what we mean by being evidence-based. We've also got really nice examples on our website of topics that we've done, that we've applied evidence-based practice to. So for example, we've done a, a review on what really works in performance management. So that was called Could Do Better. Um, we've also done uh, taken a look at diversity and inclusion practices, again, saying, what are the actual um, outcomes and what are the drivers of diversity practices? What we've what we've done on the uh, in the profession map is to say, look, here's what you can do at this level. Here's something that's a bit more advanced. Here's a bit more advanced than that. And at the top, you're kind of evaluating your own programs. You're feeding back fantastic evidence into the body of knowledge. My thanks to Johnny, Nicola, and Eric. For more information, as Johnny says, on evidence-based practice, go to the website cipd.co.uk. Next month, we'll be looking at ethics. Now, we've looked at ethics before, the business case. This time, we're going to be looking at flashpoints in organisations, what they are, how to spot them and how to deal with them. Join us then. <laughs>